0: Good morning. Yesterday I uh, uh, once a month I have two prayer uh, prayer mates that we meet in Wetherspoons in Guildford and one of them is Andy Kitto and uh, he tells me he was here with you last week in Acts chapter 16 we're going back in time according to Luke to Acts chapter 9 to the conversion of Paul and uh, particularly a dramatic conversion, something that for many people it's almost the ideal conversion of which I'm sure many of us here in this room cannot recall having such a dramatic conversion, although whether we are aware of it or not, we have moved from light, from darkness, <laughs> into light. The Lord has brought us through. I want to show you what I mean by that. If. Um, I got the right one here. There are three models of conversion that are given to us in the scriptures. The bounded model, which is, Paul is a classic case of that. You once were out of the kingdom, then you move into the kingdom. Another model of conversion you see in scripture is a journey model from unbelief, moving ever more towards belief. Belief in the Bible, the word pistuo in Greek means simply, it's a verb, it's not a noun, it's not, I believe certain stuff. It means, I believe in you. I give you my loyalty. Jesus is my compass north point. He is the one who directs my life. And that is something that all of us are constantly realizing just how much we don't do that and how much more and more the Lord is drawing us into being more Christ-like. And then, of course, the last model, of conversion is a relational model, not used as much or not experienced as much in our highly individualistic culture, but in many cultures that are community-orientated, they once, them and their tribe, their people, their family, they worshipped a thing. A, a Bible would call it an idol. Anything that's not God is an idol. It could be a career, it could be a bank balance, it could be your family. And. Uh, That's what the group that you were a part of worshipped, gave your loyalty to, in other words. And then what God does, He brings us across to another group. Another group that we relate to, called the Church, people on the way of Christ, as Luke mentions here in chapter 9. Christians who realize that actually they are being transformed, they are becoming ever more useful to God and His mission into this world. Um, But however we look at it, every model assumes that there is a point where you're aware of it or not, where you step from darkness into light. Even the journey model um, assumes that there was a time when you were journeying in unbelief, whether you were aware of it or not, you walked from darkness into light, the Lord converted you, He transformed you, he gave you the Spirit of God who ripped out that heart of stone, as Jeremiah put it, and gave you a heart of flesh, the ability to obey, which is the Bible's definition of loving God, walking in obedience in His ways. In other words, you may have left Cardiff, and you realize when you hit Bristol, my goodness, I've arrived, your brain is finally caught up with your body, and you realize, I can't remember crossing the bridge over the River Severn, but I did it. Now, my mom is Welsh, so she would not appreciate Wales being the part of darkness and England being the part of light, so you can imagine that same journey the other way around. You left Bristol, you arrived in Cardiff. You may not recall crossing the bridge, but you did. Every model assumes that, but it also assumes that there is transformation, that you weren't just converted. You are being transformed. You're choosing between what it means to rebel against God and what it means not to rebel anymore. But that transformation is what the Lord is doing to you, and He's doing it to you for a reason. Because if the gospel good news is just to convert you, just to get you out of hell and into heaven, then you might as well disappear as soon as you're converted. But that's not what the Lord does. He starts to transform us because he's got a mission into this world. And what he's doing is he's using his people to bring light into darkness, to transform everything we do through evangelism, social action, creation, care. We want to make a difference. In other words, we want to take what is there in the future, in a new heaven and a new earth, and bring shards of that into the darkness in which we live. Today, Paul is a classic example of that first model. But that's not the only thing that's happening in Paul's life. All three of those models are happening in Paul's life and your life and mine all the time. Keep in mind that Christianity in the ancient world was radical and persecuted because of conversion. Because in the ancient world, and it's not so different now, It was okay to have many gods, and the Romans tolerated a huge number of gods. And if your god was the god of your region, the Romans blessed you with that and said, Get on with it, provided you worship the emperor at the same time. In other words, exclusivity was wrong in in the Roman Empire. What was required was promiscuous worship just get over whatever your god is and be willing to worship other gods. Christianity said, no. There is only one God out there. We will bow the knee to nobody else but Jesus. Conversion from darkness into light became a radical idea that Christianity brought that many other religions did not like, and certainly the Romans didn't like, and so persecution ensued. And I would say now, even in Muslim countries, that actually when you get baptized, when you get converted, you can almost guarantee, I'm told, that persecution would begin because in Muslim lands they know only too well that conversion means only one place of loyalty to King Jesus. We need to keep in mind the background to where Paul has been as he comes into Acts chapter 9. He's been breathing hatred towards the people of the way, as as Luke writes about us. To, To Christians, he cannot imagine. Keep in mind, the early church was made up primarily of Jews. He cannot imagine how a Jew could give themselves their loyalty to another Jew who was killed as a criminal on a cross. The Pharisees, who Paul is a member of the Pharisees, a religious group, believed that when the Messiah comes, he would free them militarily from the oppression of the Romans. And Jesus did none of that. So Paul is utterly convinced this is a deviant way, and he seeks permission from the Pharisees to hunt down Christians and bring them to Jerusalem. In fact, just two chapters before our 1, the first martyr of the church, Stephen, was stoned to death by Jews, and Paul was there, then he was called Saul, and he totally approved of the death of Stephen. This is what's supposed to happen to Jews who deviate from traditional Orthodox Judaism. Okay, let's have a look at um, Paul's uh, uh, conversion. And I want you to notice that there are four stages to this walk into light. First of all, if this is, whoop, there we go. The first one, in, chapters, uh, in verses 1 to 2, notice that he came from a very dark pre-conversion reality. In other words, we cannot overlook the Lord's incredible patience on, on people who rebel against him. Now, of course, uh, this can be one of the things that frustrates Christians, and non-Christians, about God. His incredible tolerance of people who deviate from goodness and decency and being Christian in some way. But thank goodness he is patient with us. He's even patient with President Putin. Even people who cause havoc, God is patient with us. And at the same time, Christ is choosing Paul. Paul doesn't choose Christ. Sometimes we can forget to humbly recall that it was grace that chose us. We didn't choose Christ. He gives us access to the light. He draws us in. He starts to open our mind to what he's calling us to do, what obedience and conversion means. But let's not overlook just how hate-filled Paul was darkness and disobedience turns you against Christ, and that 's helpful to remember when we remember the good news that we present. Listen to this in verse two. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus because Paul was moving to Damascus so that he could, f- he could f- if he found any there who belonged to the way that was what they called Christianity, whether men or women he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul was angry. Paul did not like these Christians. I have to say, part of my own testimony, when I was in high school, I was, my family was an atheist family. If there is anything that I was taught to despise, it was Christians. They had fairy tales about fairies at the bottom of the garden, a whole lot of things in their book that made no sense to me. And I remember, I remember standing at the door to the boys' toilet, telling people to use the toilet down below, while my mates took two Christians that we despised and stuffed their head down the toilet and flushed it. Hatred, absolute hatred, whether overtly like that, like with Paul, or some people who just simply think. I didn't do anything overtly against Christ, Just it just bores me. Even that boredom is the inner heart's desire to avoid God and His call on our lives. But notice this, that there is another stage to what's going on here. And you'll see this is the bit that we often talk about, this dramatic conversion of Paul's. The Lord steps into his life in ways He doesn't do for many people even if your memory of conversion was more of a journey model or a relational model. For Paul, it was that first model, conversion that was dramatic. But notice this. Notice how Jesus (coughs) identifies himself with his people. In John chapter 15, the night before Christ was killed, he said to his disciples, I am in you and you are in me. In other words, we're connected. It's not just a distant God, it's a God who lives within us. It's through His Spirit transforming us, making us more like Him. What theologians call theosis, becoming like God. Reflecting Him, so that when we talk of the message, when we give the gospel, we don't just use it with our words, we use it with our lives. We start to become free samples of Jesus for everyone who wants to know what our God is like. So, he is persecuting what he considers to be deviant Jews and Gentiles. And um, he discovers that actually it's not just the people that he's picking on. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 4. Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Close identification Christ has with his people. A source of great comfort for anyone or any group of people who are going through a particularly dark time. Christ walks with you through that dark time. But notice this, thirdly, that a third stage of His conversion or His movement into the ways of God's people is that He's welcomed by the church. (coughs) You see, Christianity (coughs) never intended to be a walk for loners. As some people rather mockingly say about us evangelicals, your God, your Trinity is me and my God, but especially me. And we just need to say, no, that's not the case. We walk into, this, into the kingdom and we walk on into mission with God's people. We need one another because we need other people to remind us what it means to walk in the ways of Christ, to help us when we're down, so that we can help others when we're up, to be able to say to us, you're growing in Christ, to encourage one another, and then to say, and how's that going at work? How are you doing in your ability to shine Jesus, be free samples of Jesus wherever you go? We walk with each other, because we stepped into a family, that relational model, and the family teaches us what the new family's business is. And the new family's business is mission. And so we step into a family whose passion is mission, to be free samples of Jesus, to bring light wherever we go. Listen to this remarkable verse in verse 17. Here's Ananias, who's dead scared of Saul because he knows he persecutes Christians. But the radical transformation the Lord even brings to Ananias. Listen to this. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Wow. That is dramatic change for Ananias. He's scared of this man. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that you might have the Lord reach into your heart and pull out that disobedient heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So that you can walk in the ways of Christ. So that your humanity can be returned to you. Because the best way to be human is to be like Jesus Christ. Okay, and finally, you'll notice... The final stage of Paul's dramatic change, his journey into Christ-likeness, is that he is welcomed by leadership. He's valued by leadership. In a world that tends to treat leaders as if they are above the rest of us, you should never experience that amongst the people of God. You should experience servant leaders who come alongside you and want to share with you what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in the family business. People who care about you, people like Barnabas. In other words, in verse 27, unto this, but Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles. Here's someone that comes alongside him. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. In other words, they become His champion, leaders who care for you, leaders who come alongside you, leaders who don't think they're different to you, but they're just like you, sinners, and looking all the time to know what does it mean to be part of this new family. Friends, we're looking for ways to bring people into the kingdom, but it's not just about conversion. We enter into this world through evangelism, social action, creation, care. We bring what it means to be part of the kingdom into a fallen world. We want to be free samples of Jesus wherever we go. In other words, we've always got to keep in mind the big story in which all human beings now live. If I can pull the satellite of your imaginations back, away from eastern part of the Mediterranean, up, 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 you see the globe. And now you realize what God is doing, or at least you're reminded. This is the golden thread that runs through the whole Bible. It's the, sort of the trunk upon which every story, every theological idea and doctrine hangs. In the beginning, God created all things good and true and beautiful. But our ancestors decided They didn't want some authority figure telling them what is true and good and beautiful. So they rebelled. And every generation since then took on the same habit of rebellion and hatred. We don't want some authority figure to tell us what to do. We'll decide that for ourselves. And so the fall set in. Now, of course, God could have said, right, fine. I'll go some other planet. I'll start all over again. But he didn't, fortunately for us. He decided He was going to reverse the effects of the Fall. He wasn't going to allow sin and rebellion and hatred towards Him to have the last word on His creation. So He set for Himself a mission. It's not the Church's mission, it's not your mission or mine. It's God's mission. And He did it through His people. He took a people out of darkness, He polished them up, He turned them into light in the darkness. He took a man in Genesis chapter 12, a man called Abraham. He turned that man into a family. He turned that family into a nation called Israel. And strategy in the Old Testament for mission was simple. You, in a geographic place, be light in the darkness, drawing the darkness towards you. And the Queen of Sheba, of course, is a classic example of pagans responding to the light. She comes to King Solomon and she said, how blessed your people are. So the laws and the ways of your people are good for your people. That's Old Testament mission. That's, and when Israel deviated from what God had called them to do, be a reflection of me in this dark world, he sent them prophets to warn them, don't deviate from what I've called you to do. Now by the time he sends his son, the head of mission, Israel had once again deviated from what God was calling them to do. When you see Jesus walk into the court of the Gentiles, a court that was set aside for world mission, you see he gets mad, he overturns tables, brings out a whip. Why? Because his people had given up on what he would called them to do, be light in the darkness. So now in strategy number two, and we see this starting with Paul, God decides to make mission go global. Now you can't make mission go global based on 0.2% of the world's population. Jews only make 0.2% of the world's population. So now, you bring in the Gentiles. And the new people of God are both Jews and Gentiles who are doing mission for God, but now He sends them globally. Now we are lights spreading all around the planet. Jews and Gentiles alike who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And we know that somewhere between Paul and the final end of history, where we step into a new heaven and a new earth, God will continue to use His people to bring light into the darkness. That's why we say that it's conversion for mission. In other words, it's more than just conversion. It's more than getting you out of hell and into heaven. As useful as that is at the end of life, In the meantime, it's about transformation. It's about becoming free samples of Jesus to everyone who wants to know what our God is like. Friends, that is the big story. But you'll notice as we look at Paul's story of conversion that we grow in Christlikeness when we remember our rebellious past. Maybe your story of rebellion was worse than mine. Maybe it wasn't. But it keeps you humble. Because it was grace that chose you and brought you into the kingdom. It wasn't the brilliance of our rational minds. It wasn't that I read a book about Jesus and thought this sounds logical and sensible. It was God. Whatever mechanism He's used, God stepped into our dark rebellion. But secondly, we grow because He converts us. Whether you can remember crossing the bridge from Cardiff to Bristol, doesn't matter. Somewhere, God did something in your life. He ripped out that rebellious heart of stone and He gave you a heart of flesh. He gave you the Spirit of God who is helping us to obey, helping to return our humanity to us, helping us to become free samples of Jesus. But then we also grow when we join a local church, where we stop the sort of Western individualism that says, it's just about me and this Bible book and prayer. It's not. It's about joining a people who take mission seriously, who are part of God's tools to reshape you, to make you more like the Jesus you proclaim. And then finally, we grow when leaders are servant leaders, where people further ahead on the journey into Christlikeness help us, guide us, care for us, Are not like leaders that we find in the world who are aloof, but rather servant leaders. You see, the goal of your conversion was to help you to grow and become Christ like, to find your humanity has been returned to you, so that you don't only speak the gospel, but you enflesh the gospel. You see, Whether you are aware of it or not, all three of those models of conversion are in operation in your life all the time. You are constantly moving from, if not unbelief, weak belief, weak understanding, into greater understanding. Because of relationships you've formed, they are helping you to understand more deeply what does it mean to be Christ-like. I heard a lovely story of a young woman who was returning from Soul Survivor. She'd got a real evangelism, passion in her heart. And she was uh, traveling on the train. She decided to get up and go and get a cup of coffee. And as she was walking along the passageway, she noticed there was a bishop, a man with a dog collar on, sitting in one of the seats. Well, she had zeal from Soul Survivor. She decided no man, just because he's got a dog collar on, can assume he's a Christian. So she stopped in front of him and said, Excuse me, sir. Have you been saved? (laughs) Which I think, boy, that's bold. That is bold. But she was passionate. She'd been a sole survivor. Have you been saved, sir? And this godly bishop, a lovely man and a deep theologian, he looked at her and he said, Well, that depends on what you mean. Do you mean, was I saved? I was. Or do you mean, am I being saved? I am. Or do you mean, will I be saved? I will. There is a man who understood what growth in Christlikeness and imitating Christ means. Now I never heard the end of the story, but I like to think that this young woman just swallowed hard, I think I am going to get myself a cup of coffee, and she just darted off. Because the bishop was right. It's not just about whether you are in and you are out. It's whether we can ask each other, are you still growing in the ways of Christ? Are you still being that light wherever God has placed you? Whatever He's called you to do, keep doing it. If it brings Him glory, just keep doing it. Because your job is not to convert the world. Your job is just to be a free sample of Jesus wherever He calls you to be that. So just keep on keeping on in the ways of Christ. Amen. And